Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the least reported aspect of the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, and that is how much crypto loans that bank had made converting fake money into real money, with Circle, a crypto company, being the biggest depositor with $3.3 billion in the bank, which the government just made whole. Joining us is David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. He's the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. We will discuss his article at Salon and DCReport.org, How Bitcoin and Other Magic Internet Money Loans Endanger Your Financial Health. It's the big bank failure story no one is talking about. Then, with the 20th anniversary of America's ill-fated war against Iraq coming up on Monday, we'll speak with Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as Chief of Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center from 1997 to 1999 and was Deputy Chief of the Center. Paul Piller is currently a Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies. And we will discuss Paul's article at Responsible Statecraft, The Selling of the Iraq War Involved Mass Calibility Atop Mass Hysteria, And we'll examine similar hysteria about China coming from Congress and the press today. Then finally we'll go to Taiwan, which could be a flashpoint for a new war with China, and speak with Cleo Pascal, a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments of the United States, the United Kingdom and the the European Union, India, and many others, and she's the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic, and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. And we will discuss her article at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Micronesia's President Writes Bombshell Letter on China's Political Warfare. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer 
of the United States. He's the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. And he has an article at Salon, How Bitcoin and Other Magic Internet Money Loans Endanger Your Financial Health. It's the big bank failure story no one is talking about. Welcome to Background Briefing, David K. Johnson. Well, thank you. And just to be clear, uh, the story is from dcreport.org. Salon is just one of the places we allow to reprint it for free. Oh, okay. So I've been mystified how Bitcoin ever took off in these NFTs, because it's just so ridiculous, the idea that you spend real money to buy fake money. But what you're telling us now is that the Silicon Valley Bank and we know that it's the biggest depositor was Circle. They had $3.3 billion in deposits there, and they're a Bitcoin outfit. But what I'm learning now is as bad as it is to, to have real money buying fake money, they turn around now and use the fake money to buy real money in the form of bank loans. I mean, my God, this is unbelievable. Um yeah, you've got it exactly right. That's actually, I wish I'd come up with that phrase that uh, you use real money to buy fake money. The metaphor I used was that loaning against crypto, and there are banks that will loan you 90% of the value of crypto, which is highly volatile. Um, SVB, the failed bank up in the, the Bay Area, was loaning 50%. That's the equivalent is taking, of taking in, colla- in collateral ice cubes in January because they will, red, they will melt come spring and evaporate come summer. And the banking regulators could stop this. They could say you cannot use crypto as security for a loan. So by uh, taking care of the depositors at this bank, which is probably the right thing to do for reasons I don't like. It's not like the 2008 bailout of the shareholders. This is a bailout of depositors. Um, The government is facilitating criminal behavior because the only real uses of Bitcoin are to launder drug money, uh, hide money from the tax authorities, and hide money from your estranged spouse or creditors. Uh, it really doesn't have any use as a currency. So back to Circle, the biggest depositor at the Silicon Valley Bank, $3.3 billion. They're a crypto outfit. The government, is obviously the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Commission, they insured deposits for regular folk up to 250000 But they've stepped in now and made Circle whole and Roku and a bunch of others. This is what burns me up, David, is that these millions of American kids trying to get an education and a decent job and a decent future who've taken out student loans. The Republicans have blocked them in the in the Congress and the Supreme Court, I'm sure, is going to rule against them because of they're such a, you know, dominated by these far-right conservative Republicans. So... I just find it absolutely unconscionable that we're hanging out these kids to dry. You know, they, they've taken out student loans and they're indentured before they even get a job. We can't take care of them, but we can take care of a crypto company like Circle. Ian, my friend, have you lost your mind? 
I mean, those students, there would be a moral hazard. We would be teaching them a horrible moral lesson if we were to forgive their loans just because the government gave the money through the loan to fake colleges that failed without giving degrees to these students in many cases. But, you know, here we're talking about wealthy people who have earned respect and have acquired a great deal of assets. And so, of course, there's no moral hazard when we bail them out from their bad choices. <laughs> and nobody's people noticed. People don't get it. I'm sorry. I'm trying to be as sarcastic. I know. That. I get it. <laughs> but surely somebody noticed what happened with Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah, that's an astonishing story because Sam Bankman-Fried's parents, one of whom I know, uh, his father, it are very moralistic professors of law at Stanford University, and they raised their two sons in a household where they were constantly talking about doing the right thing and understanding that that's not a simple black and white in many cases. Um, and, you know, clearly the the uh, outcome in the case of their son was, was pretty awful. And uh, they're probably going to, in one way or another, get ensnared into this too, despite uh, having known the father, at least as a news source, for a couple of decades, a rather shocking outcome. But the point is, though, that the crypto world has come crashing down, has it not? I mean, why would anybody be still throwing good money after bad? Well, the crypto, the price of Bitcoin has gone up since the collapse of the bank. It's gone from, um, let me just look. Five days ago, it was trading at $20,500, and now it's trading at $25,000. So it's gone up roughly 20% in five days. This is part of the, the insanity of all of this, because you know people who are into crypto, and many of them are libertarians, they will tell you, well, the US dollar is worthless. It's not backed by gold. It's not backed by anything. Yeah, it's backed by the full faith and credit of the most powerful government the world has ever seen in the wealthiest country, major country in the world, the United States. But crypto is based on uh, computers solving math problems and getting a real reward called a Bitcoin or Ether or Circle. There are a whole bunch of these things out there. And they are literally backed by absolutely nothing. Uh, but you know, people are often deluded in their beliefs. I mean, think of all the people who thought that uh, Donald would be a great president and still do. Well, that's a mind-boggling situation to try and... I mean, I get brain damaged all the time. I, I think about what do so many people in this country see in this dreadful man. You'd have to scour the country to find a worse human being than Donald Trump. And I know you've followed him for years, so I'm sure it drives you crazy too. Oh, uh, I did not intend to spend 10% of my life the last seven and a half years uh, covering Donald 24-7. And I, of course, covered him for th be 35 years come June. Um, and it is, uh, it is deeply soul-ruining to deal with him and, and his behavior. So, but this bank is illustrative, I think, Silicon Valley Bank, plus the Signature Bank in New York, which collapsed, where, lo and behold, Barney Frank isn't now, but was uh, a trustee, a director of the bank. And of course, he was the great promoter 
of reform, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act, for example, for banking. Um, and there are other banks doing this. There's a lot more about this bank than we have seen come to light. I wrote about the Bitcoin issue. And by the way, a number of noted economists have sent me private notes uh, praising my piece at DC Report um, uh, for pointing out something nobody else is doing, which is what I usually try to do. But there are other aspects of this, Ian, that are very troubling. First of all, this excessive concentration of money that the venture capitalists gave to startups. Uh, it is said that 50% of all the VC money in the Bay Area, and that's the big D VC venture capital headquarters of America, was at this one bank. Um, that doesn't make sense on a business level. So my guess is there's some kind of backscratching arrangements you and I have not seen and may never seen, uh, see unless the authorities decide to probe them. Uh, they were making, I uh, guarantee you, because there's some evidence in the public record of this, uh, loans to unqualified borrowers. Uh, 25, 26 years ago, 29 years ago, 29 years ago, my friend Floyd Norris in the New York Times broke a story, and I've written about this many times. How is it that you've got a founder of a high-tech company who hasn't sold a share of stock whose salary is $100,000 a year. That's a nice paycheck, but you know it's not enough to buy a mansion and a million-dollar sports car and a half-a-million-dollar sports car for your girlfriend and a private jet. How are these guys doing that? Well, very simple. Uh, they borrow against their stock. And for the last 10 years, you could borrow against your stock and pay 1% or 2% interest, uh, whereas the lowest tax rate you could get if you sold any of your stock would be uh, federal, would be 20, almost 24%, a little under 24%. But why would anybody pay a 24% tax if they can pay 2% in interest, especially if their assets are going up in value? If we had a thorough and proper investigation by the Senate Banking and Currency Committee, because I have no faith in the House Committee, led by Republicans, I am sure we would find out that there were all sorts of loan arrangements that nobody could get except for steering business into this bank. And loans that, that were not properly documented, were not properly protected by things like mortgages that are recorded at the courthouse, uh, by lending way out of proportion to people's income and on wildly speculative assets. Because Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies, they're not the only wildly speculative assets out there. There's lots of little high-tech companies, some of which turn out to be great profitable giants like Adobe and Microsoft and uh, Facebook and Twitter, well, Twitter was, but most of them you never hear about because they fail. And banks shouldn't be loaning money to speculative assets like that because at the end of the day, you and I, one way or another, will pay. In this case, well, the shareholders are going to be wiped out at this bank or largely wiped out. The depositors are going to be made whole through the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. It's only got $250 billion of assets. This bank alone may well end up costing uh, somewhere between $25 and $100 billion of that, which is going to mean higher premiums for all banks, including the well-run banks, and higher premiums for deposit insurance 
means you and I will pay higher prices for various banking services. There's no free lunch, much as the people in Silicon Valley want you to think there is. And the methodology of the rich and the super rich, like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, who pulled out his money from SVB Bank before anybody else, um, the Amazon guy whose name now I can't think of. Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. They do exactly what you're talking about, which is uh, they borrow against their stock and rather than sell their stock. And living off debt is something that Trump also perfected. Right. Um, so and the trick is, the trick is, if, if you know, if, if you have a million dollars in the bank and want 50000 a year to live on, that won't work because you don't have enough assets. But if you have $100 million and your lifestyle costs $1 million, you can do this forever, especially if your stock's growing at 5% and you're borrowing at 2 you will actually get richer every year while paying no taxes. And right. Congress could and should, in my opinion, stop uh, doing this, Ian. But th there's a whole lot of things that are going to come to light, we hope. And if they don't, we should be leaning on the Democrats to raise hell about, because the right. Republicans certainly will not do so in this current environment. But that's that, not to say, just in closing, David, that the Democrats come out of this scot-free. I mean, the, first of all, the guy that owns Silicon Valley Bank is a big donor to the Democrats. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, no, I agree. But I just don't see any hope that the Republicans in either the House or the Senate are going to uh, ask questions that they don't want answered about what has been done to our economy. Uh, Democrats have lots of fault here. The Democrats... Uh, did not unify and, and really take on and persuade the public that what Donald Trump had done to the banking law, the change in 2018, uh, which is behind all of this. We have a piece that just went up within the last hour at DC Report by the economist Dean Baker, explaining in very clear, plain language, you don't have to be an economist or a banking expert to understand, this is Donald Trump's disaster because he signed a law that removed the kind of uh, what are called stress tests, the regulatory oversight that this bank should have had but didn't because Trump exempted it from that kind of testing. Right. And But a lot of Democrats in the Senate vote, voted for it, and a lot of Democrats in the House, like Maxine Waters, took money from SVB Bank. So. Yeah. No, I think, no, I don't think very many people, Ian, have clean hands, yeah. but there's a difference between people who may have dirty hands but will do things exactly. and people who simply will not under any circumstances do things. You know, as Ralph Nader has been shouting for about 40 or 50 years, there's only one party in Washington. It's the Greenback Party, <laughs> and it has separate wings, you know, a liberal wing, a conservative wing, but it's it's the party of money. Right. Well, David, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with David K. Johnson, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and the best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. He's the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book is... The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced American Enriched Himself and His Family. And he has an article at Salon and at DC Report, How Bitcoin and Other Magic Internet Money Loans Endanger Your Financial Health. 
It's the big bank failure story no one is talking about. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back ahead of the 20th anniversary of America's ill-fated war against Iraq, which comes up on Monday. We'll be discussing how the selling of the Iraq war involved mass gullibility atop mass hysteria and how similar hysteria about China is coming from the Congress and the press today. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia, previously served as Chief of Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence Counterterrorism Center, and from 1997 to 1999 was Deputy Chief of the Center. Paul Piller is currently a Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies, and he has an article at Responsible Statecraft. The selling of the Iraq war involved mass gullibility atop mass hysteria. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Piller. Thank you, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Paul. And today, the Senate voted to open debate on a bipartisan bill that would repeal the authorizations Congress passed in 1991 and 2002 for the U.S. wars in Iraq. They voted 68 to 27, which, of course, is above the the filibuster threshold. What do you make of that move? Well, it's long overdue. I mean, both of these authorizations for the use of military force uh, should have been rescinded many years ago, but it's, it's a welcome step Uh, toward a Congress asserting itself more than it has when it comes to the use of military force. We still have, in effect, this uh, more general authorization that was passed in the immediate wake of 9-11, which has been used by more than one administration in a a rather loose way. So, uh, um, you know, I I won't uh, congratulate Congress yet on fully assuming its role with regard to uh, the constitutional uh, duty of declaring war. Well, I recall at the time that in the kind of drumbeat of war, prior to the actual pulling the trigger with shock and awe, talking with Senator Bob Graham, the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and they basically had the evidence that the Bush administration's uh, rationale and justification for the war was completely not supported uh, in terms of Iraq having weapons of mass destruction. And only 23 senators voted against this war resolution. And on the Democratic side, prominent senators like Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, Dianne Feinstein, they all voted for the war. I remember at the, later talking with John Kerry about that, and, and he said, well, I, if I would have voted for the war, I wouldn't have got a vote in the South. Well, he didn't get a vote in the South in any case. So what explains why the Democrats went along with that bogus NIE that Bob Graham had exposed? 
Well, I'm glad you mentioned Senator Graham because he certainly deserves compliments for playing his role responsibly. He was at the time the, the chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Yes, there was this infamous, uh, what became infamous, intelligence estimate about unconventional weapons in Iraq, which was at congressional request uh, hurriedly prepared. Uh, and what people need to realize is, even though this was requested by Congress, very, very few members of Congress in either House or the Senate bothered even to look at it. Uh, Senator Graham was one of the few who did. And when he read it, as he later indicated, uh, that made it clear to him that there wasn't any you know, strong case with regard to weapons of mass destruction in, in Iraq. Uh, as the intelligence estimate laid it out, it was there were lots of caveats. There were a lot of gaps that uh, you would have to fill with supposition or uh, analysis that gets a bit stretched. And his conclusion was it was a flimsy enough case uh, that that was not a basis for war. And, and he, despite his own presidential ambitions at the time, uh, voted against the resolution. Uh, part of the additional background for the Democrats you mentioned, and, and with the exception of Bob Graham, and I think Dennis Kucinich was the other one who was had his eye on the presidency, who, who voted against uh, the resolution. All the others voted in favor of it. Um, and the reason there were more Democrats in the Senate who favored that resolution than in the House was that you had more presidential aspirants in the Senate. <laughs> And people like like Kerry and Joe Biden and and some of the others we could mention, uh, they recalled you know the earlier Persian Gulf War, the one in 1991, uh, which many of them had opposed at the time, even though that was a clear cut case of reversing naked aggression by Saddam Hussein's Iraqi forces in seizing Kuwait, uh, and that turned out to be a smashing military victory and very popular with the American public since it turned out so well. And so those Democratic uh, candidates uh, did not want to be caught on the wrong side, as they saw it, of what could turn out to be a, a popular military campaign, as was the fact in as was the case in 1991. Uh, another factor that entered into the political thinking was on the Democratic side. Uh, they, most of them wanted to get past this Iraq issue and get past to get back to domestic issues that were uh, they saw as firmer ground and more comfortable political territory to uh, to plow. Uh, and you add all those things up and you got the result you did on that vote. And of course, the the other drumbeat of war, those that were beating the drum, in fact, were the press. And I recall at the time interviewing a couple of people who actually know the region, know Iraq well and speak Arabic, Bob Bear and Graham Fuller. And it was very clear, and I remember broadcasting at the time, saying that this is going to be a, a quick victory followed by a slow defeat. But uh, the, the rest of the press were just absolutely on board and all giddy over shock and awe, etc. So you mentioned in your article at Responsible Statecraft, uh, Paul Pillar, the selling of the Iraq war involved mass gullibility atop mass hysteria. Are we in having another bout of mass hysteria at the moment over China? Today, now we're learning the administration is trying to force TikTok to, to sell its holdings here in the United States, of, or ByteDance, I guess, is a holding company. We've had uh, the so-called spy balloon. And frankly, 
there's been an incredible silence about what was found on the bottom of the ocean off South Carolina, which makes me wonder whether or not the spy balloon, the so-called spy balloon, was in fact what the Chinese claim it was, uh, because we haven't heard a damn thing about it. So do you see any kind of links to uh, the, our historical lessons not learned about Iraq in terms of the present situation with China? Well, a couple of points. Uh, one is, you know, what happened in 2003 was all in the wake of what happened in September of 2001, which was 9-11. And the American public became outraged and uh, far more militant than Americans had been for many, many years and were in more of a mood to strike out against somebody uh, who could be seen as a foreign adversary, even if in the case of the Iraqi regime, it was one that did not, in fact, have anything to do with the 9-11 attack. But uh, there are lots of things about the public mood in those first couple of years after 9-11 that promoted excesses uh, that did not inspire any public opposition or much public opposition, and American politicians went along with that. We could talk uh, in the same spirit about many of the uh, uh, things that later became controversial, uh, such as the use of torture on detainees, uh, such as the use of extensive, uh, much much more extensive than we had in effect before, um, uh, domestic uh, intelligence gathering uh, methods that later became controversial. Um, so that's, that, that, that's part of the lesson. We, we could have another major terrorist attack. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's not precluded. And if something like that happens or some other incident happens that sufficiently enrages the American public as happened back in 2001, uh, then I think we'd have, would have a larger potential for destructive actions being taken that would get public support, uh, which could be oriented toward China or anyone else. As for China specifically, I, I think you're right, Ian, that, uh, there is a bit of, uh, I don't know if I quite apply the, the term hysteria at this point, but uh, a kind of consensus uh, in favor of a hard line toward China that basically adds up to a new Cold War. I think we saw that in the initial hearings of the, the China committee that was established by the Republicans in the House, but really expressed a lot of things both by Republicans and Democrats that were along the lines of, you know, we are in a very serious conflict uh, uh, with with China and there seems to be no backing off of it. You know, you mentioned the um, the Chinese balloon. In addition to you know, what may come out of whatever was recovered from that balloon itself, I was struck by how the Biden administration, and I think partly in response to all the expressions of alarm and concern after the the balloon's overflight. Then over the next few days, you know, used uh, half million dollar air-to-air -air missiles to shoot down other balloons that probably were just hobbyist, hobbyist balloons and had nothing to do with China. Uh, you know, it's almost a trivial example, but it does demonstrate how a, a reflexive resort to military force as a response to uh, expressions of alarm by the American public and by politicians in Washington um, uh, can lead to some things that are uh, silly, if not destructive. But meanwhile, China just brokered a re-engagement of Iran and Saudi Arabia, bitter enemies, restoring diplomatic relations. And today we're learning that Ukraine's foreign minister spoke with his Chinese counterpart about a peace plan 
Will the Chinese leave us behind? In other words, have we forgotten diplomacy? Are we so involved with the world's greatest military, outspends of what, seven or eight of its rivals combined with a kind of mentality that because you've got a hammer, everything out there is a nail? Yeah, well, right now they are leaving us behind with regard to the kind of creative and constructive diplomacy that you mentioned, and certainly the the Chinese role in uh, bringing about a lessening of tensions in the Persian Gulf with the restoration of diplomatic relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia is a positive. Having a reduction in tensions in that area is in everyone's interest, including the U.S. interest. You know, it didn't have to be that way. The U.S. could play just as constructive and useful a role if we were willing to do business with everyone and talk to everyone, um, just like the Chinese do in the Middle East. And I might add the Russians pretty much do in the Middle East too. You know, they talk and have good relations with the Israelis as well as with uh, some of the Israelis' uh, adversaries elsewhere in the region. Um, but instead, uh, the American pattern has been uh, to sort of divide the region as we tend to divide the rest of the world often into good guys and bad guys. And the good guys we support no matter what they do. Um, and the bad guys we don't talk to at all. So in the Middle East, you know, we have no, no relations right now with Iran. We, ha we refuse to have relations with the Syrian regime. Uh, we refuse to deal with Hamas, which is uh, the most popular Palestinian um, uh, party element. Uh, and when you restrict your own diplomacy that way, then you are unable to do the kind of constructive things that the Chinese have just accomplished. And in your article, Paul uh, Pillar, at Responsible Statecraft, the selling of the Iraq war involved mass gullibility atop mass hysteria. You say that Russian President Vladimir Putin has been quick to mention the U.S. invasion of Iraq and to accuse Washington of, hip of hypocrisy. To American ears, this rhetorical line is annoying whataboutism, but Putin has a point. What the United States did to Iraq in 2003 was just as much a war of aggression as what Russia did to Ukraine in 2022. So this seems like, like to be a moment of reckoning here. With uh, We started out talking about the Senate voting to debate a bipartisan bill to repeal the authorization of the Iraq wars. Is this a moment for us to sort of do a reckoning? I mean, I think you're a lonely voice, Paul, but uh, do you think there's a chance of people having second thoughts about you know, our lack of diplomacy and relying so much on our military power? Uh, I'm not very optimistic, Ian. I mean, one can look for grains of reason to to have additional hope. With regard to China, you know, I mentioned that hearing that was held uh, just within the past couple of weeks, that there wasn't much coming out of that that gave me encouragement that there would be more careful thinking about how we need to find ways to cooperate with China on matters of common concern. I would put you know, climate change at the top of that list, but there are certainly many others. Um, with regard to the Middle East, um, maybe there's, you know, here's here, this might be one thing in which something bad yields a bit of uh, a, a good side effect, and that's what's going on in Israel right now. And all the tremendous controversy over the uh, you know, Netanyahu uh, government's attempt to uh, emasculate the judiciary, which has engaged 
you know, many of what are Israel's traditional supporters here in the United States in a very critical way. Uh, I just saw a poll, um, uh, the results of which, um, well, a poll, one of these polls that asks, are your sympathies more with the Israelis or with the Palestinians when it comes to their conflict? And we know there's been a partisan divide on that one for some time, but this was the first one in which a majority of Democrats, or at least a plurality of Democrats, um, express more sympathy with the Palestinians than with the Israelis. Um, th there are a lot of shortcomings in all the commentary about what's going on in Israel. Most of it focuses just on the, the judicial issue and what's going on among Jewish Israelis and kind of still sidestepping the whole question of conflict with the Palestinians. But I think one positive thing that might come out of that is at least that we're seeing more questioning of what has been so often the unquestioned uh, you know, U.S. support for Israel, no matter what it does. And that might have some spillover effects as it goes beyond internal Israeli matters or even beyond the conflict with the Palestinians and relates to things like uh, the Persian Gulf and, and how Iran comes into this equation. Nonetheless, this is a, is a pretty slender grain of a uh, small grain of hope. And for the most part, I'm pessimistic uh, uh, in response to your question. Well, just in closing, of course, uh, back to the Chinese brokered rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, the U.S.-Israeli Abraham Accords certainly look pretty um, irrelevant in that context, don't they? Well, the big question that has never been asked enough times is, you know, what's in it for the U.S. in terms of promoting, um, uh, you know, Israeli relations with these various Arab countries? And, and the U.S.'s administration today is still trying to promote, you know, Israeli relations with Saudi Arabia, with Indonesia and others to the extent that uh, established relations reflect a true uh, easing of tensions or resolving of conflicts. That's great. But the so-called Abraham Accords are not that at all. You know, Israel was not in a state of war with with uh, the UAE or with Bahrain uh, and or with Morocco. And the Trump administration had to pay some, uh, let's let's call it bribery to some of these regimes, such as uh, shipment of more advanced arms to the UAE to get them to to do what they did. Instead, it, it intensifies conflict. It, it, it's more in the nature of, and this is certainly what the Israelis have in mind, an anti-Iranian military alliance and a way to get around having to do uh, any settlement with the Palestinians. So that just freezes that conflict uh, forever. So um, I, I, I think uh, we, we ought to ask ourselves next time we hear our Secretary of State, you know, say encouraging the Saudis to uh, establish normal relations with Israel. What What is the advantage for peace in the Middle East and for U.S. interests? And I simply don't see any. Well, Paul Pillar, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Paul Pillar, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia, and previously served as Chief of the Analytics Units at the CIA covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center, and from 1997 to 1999 was Deputy Chief of the Center. 
Yeah, Paul Piller is currently a professor of security studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies. And he has an article at Responsible Statecraft. The selling of the Iraq war involved mass gullibility atop mass hysteria. We're going to take a brief station break and back and go to Taiwan, which many see as a new flashpoint amid threats from China and concerns over the possibility of a new war breaking out over Taiwan. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Taiwan is Cleo Pascal, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic, and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments of the United States, the United Kingdom, and the European Union, India, and many others, and is the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic, and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. And she has an article at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, Micronesia's President Writes Bombshell Letter on China's Political Warfare. Welcome to Background Briefing, Cleo Biscal. Uh, great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Cleo. And there you are at the new flashpoint. I guess uh, Ukraine is the major flashpoint. It's gone beyond a flashpoint now to an all-out war. But then there's a great deal of concern, of course, that China is looking at what's happening in Ukraine and looking more at a military solution, if you will, for reunification. What's the mood in Taiwan? So there's a lot of concern, uh, but there's also a, a bit of a sort of we're used to it kind of a mode. I think uh, that, that those that are looking at it um, from a strategic perspective are very, very concerned, especially with the language uh, that General Secretary Xi has been using lately around uh, around Taiwan about how this seems to be a central goal of his, um, perhaps during his term, not just 2049, which was the deadline that was all, often used previously. And if you look at how they're building up the PLA Navy, um, what sort of weapon systems they're developing, um, how much focus is being put on that, it's, it's really hard not to be concerned. But among the people on the street, there there really is, I'd say, just a kind of just a, a blitheness. Uh, life life is just going on as usual, even though the government itself is is extending the mandatory service uh, from about from a few months to a year and uh, looking at some other things. But there's no real sense of urgency here on on the street among the general population. And what's happening in terms of building up? Taiwan's defenses? So uh, a, a wide range of things. Um, there's a, uh, a limit being put on, on what they can buy by the United States, and that's a, a serious bone of contention. I'd say that, that one of the things that's getting a lot of coverage on a daily basis is the pre-kinetic 
positioning. So this issue of, of diplomatic recognition. Just today, the headlines, of course, are that it looks like Honduras will be de-recognizing Taiwan and shifting Beijing, leaving Taiwan with just 13 diplomatic partners. And there has been this persistent uh, scything away of the of diplomatic support, which is essential in the political warfare realm. So even before you get to kinetic, Taiwan is losing positioning. But there is this opening, uh, which is in the uh, letter that that you referenced at the beginning uh, from the Federated States of Micronesia, of a country potentially recognizing Taiwan for the first time in years, which could change the narrative a little bit in favor of uh, democracies in the region. So let's talk about the letter from David Penuelo, uh, the president of the Federated States of Micronesia. We've spoken earlier, Cleo Pascal, about what happened in the Solomons, where the Chinese had made uh, inroads and essentially bribed a, a corrupt leader. And this was a situation uh, where the Americans had sort of outsourced security in that region to the Australians and the conservative Australian government dropped the ball rather badly because they, for some reason, have some ridiculous rule where you can't talk to the opposition. And the, <laughs> So that is a situation that's still festering. But Micronesia, of course, is another large island chain. And this is quite a, a, quite a bombshell that he's dropped, the uh, president, basically talking about being strong-armed by the Chinese, attempts to bribe, having PLA intelligence officers follow him around, etc., etc. So what kind of impact is it having in the, the Pacific region? It's having an impact globally because this is the these are the sort of things that have been uh, reported in bits and pieces, um, but sometimes are dismissed as paranoia or conspiracy theory. But here is the the president of a country giving very concrete examples of the way uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, and the PLA have been affecting the way that his government can operate, including. For example, there was a a meeting, uh, a multilateral meeting where they didn't want to send anybody, and China self-appointed Marshallese to represent the government of the Marshall Islands at the meeting, completely bypassing the governance structure. Um, Even more disturbingly, he says that his personal safety has been threatened uh, by the Chinese representatives, diplomatic representatives, um, and and that they have been giving money to uh, separatist movements within his country, uh, affecting potentially the actual integrity of his nation. Um, and he's he has actually, in lame duck mode, he's lost uh, the, the election, uh, so he won't be president in two months. He has two months. And he's used the the freedom, effectively, of being in that kind of a position to lay it out all on the line. And not only does he say all of this is happening and say that this is fundamentally affecting his country's ability to uh, maintain uh, democratic status by the way that the democratic process is being completely undermined by uh, China, he's saying that he would like, in fact, to use the time he has left to recognize Taiwan if he can come to an agreement with Taiwan on uh, how that could be done. So did the Chinese help 
the new government get elected? Is it an opposition government that succeeded him? So what they tend to do is, um, it, it's even it can be even more complex than that. They can just fund opposition within the same uh, political groupings uh, if they don't have somebody who's compliant. And uh, this president, President Panuelo, previously wrote two very important letters similarly raising concern over PRC activity in the region. Uh, so it, he hasn't directly... Um, said that, uh, but it's completely consistent with PRC behavior that we've seen elsewhere. And um, you, you mentioned the Solomon Islands. Um, last time we spoke, uh, the, there was a, a, a the leader of a province, uh, Malaita province in Solomon's that, the, that had said he didn't want any CCP-linked businesses operating in his province because he was concerned about the way they operate and the effect on his society and uh, economy, including environmental issues and social issues. They spent, uh, the numbers that I've heard is that the PRC spent about 60, 70 million dollars bribing people in his province and about six weeks ago uh, managed to engineer a vote of no confidence that uh, resulted in him losing the premiership. Um, and they've ne- they're now trying to say he was an agent of Taiwan because a, basically a foreign agent can't even sit in the assembly. So there have been these very big wins on Chinese political warfare front elsewhere. And David Panuelo in the FSM is now standing up as the president of a country and saying, uh, you know, my democracy is being undermined by it. And he's previously said the entire region is at risk. And of course, we're seeing the same thing elsewhere in Africa and in the Indian Ocean. Um, so uh, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if um, they that he's being politically targeted, although I, he hasn't said it, and uh, I haven't seen the numbers. But I don't understand why, for example, the Australians were asleep at the switch and why the U.S. has sort of ignored this region, and they only recently opened an embassy in the Solomons on Guadalcanal, which, of course, is a huge part of American history, given the critical battle with the Marines in World War II. It's hard to understand why there is such neglect, and you spend a lot of time in these islands, and there's enormous poverty there, and it wouldn't take very much to make the lives of these people better. So the Chinese have come in to fill a vacuum, have they not? Uh, well, that's how they present themselves, but uh, but you know, of course, it, it, they come in saying this is this is commercial engagement. We're we're going to do the things that, as you say, Australia, New Zealand, the U.S. haven't done, and uh, but they always have a strategic goal. So if you look at the ports they build, you know, the the docks are almost invariably big enough. Uh, the specs are so that you can dock a Chinese aircraft carrier there. Um, but the third element of it, so there's the commercial, there's the strategic, and the third element of it, which is always there, is corruption, a very, very deep corruption that undermines the democratic processes in the country and facilitates the installation of these sort of strong men or women, that mostly men at the moment, that you're seeing in places like the Solomon Islands and, and the actual destruction of democracy. Solomon Islands now was supposed to have an election in 2023. Um, the Chinese slush fund was used to pay off 39 out of the 50 members of parliament. And as a result, they have now delayed, so to speak, I mean, de- they changed the constitution to delay elections. We'll see whether they actually do hold elections. But you, you can see this 
process where, yes, they use this very real need for economic engagement, but the end goal isn't to improve the lives of the people of the country. The goal is to create a state of dependency on Beijing so that Beijing is remote controlling the country. It's Hong Kongifying the country, so to speak. So if I assume Australia has a new government and the US, as I mentioned, have at least opened diplomatic relations in the Solomons or set up an embassy, are they paying catch-up? Is there any evidence or can you tell us what they're doing to counter this the malign influence of China? So the, the Australian situation is, I mean, as you know very well, and, and you've talked about it uh, eloquently at length, you know, countries are not monolithic. So uh, when you say Australia, there, there are several different Australias. And uh, there's, I'll talk about two of them. One is the business interests within Australia who have considered this zone their kind of um, exclusive playground for a while, including on uh, mineral extractions and things like that. And um, I suspect probably what may have happened to determine some of the uh, Solomon's engagement and Papua New Guinea engagement would have had to do with uh, business interests and political party donations, kind of the just very basic old school stuff like that. Another part is, um, you know, Australia wants a trade deal with China. And uh, if it uh, if it causes China too much trouble elsewhere, then I'm sure you're going to be hearing complaints from from the Chinese representatives during the course of those discussions. So is Australia willing to stand up to China in a place like Solomon's if they think it's going to affect their chances of getting a trade deal that they think they need for their economy? I'm not sure it, it is necessary, but they think it's necessary. Um, are they willing to you know, protect others' economy and democracy from the predations of Beijing uh, at, at risk of affecting their own. Well, their biggest trading partner, Australia's biggest trading partner is China, and the same is true in, in Germany. But Australia is having a prickly relationship in terms of its foreign policy, starting with the suggestion on the part of the Australian government that maybe there should be an investigation into the origins of COVID, which made Xi Jinping have a hissy fit and slap sanctions on the Australians. And now, just uh, a couple of days ago, in San Diego, President Biden met with the Australian and the British Prime Minister for the unveiling the AUKUS plan for Australia to, to buy American nuclear submarines and then develop their own in conjunction with the British and the Americans. And that's also upset the Chinese. So there's no shortage of the Chinese being upset with the Australians, but they still seem to have those trade ties. Yeah, and 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 as 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 mentioned, there there are multiple different Australias and those Austra- that that what you're talking about there is is absolutely laudable and the and there's been a lot of effort within Australia to expose corrupt ties to uh, China. And uh, it, it really has taken the lead. And, and as you say, it took a really big hit for uh, asking f- for the COVID origins investigations. Uh, all I can say is what I've seen in the Pacific Islands is not effective. And, and even worse than that, uh, Australian representatives uh, tend to do a lot of what one uh, Pacific Islander described to me as aggressive patch protection where they don't want others, including allies, to come in 
uh, in a in a major way because they want to be the primary entry point. So if you take a look at uh, Solomon Islands now, for example, um, the, Sogavari has banned any naval ship from visiting except for Australia and New Zealand, which I think he has some sort of an agreement with them, so he couldn't do those either. But Australia is not objecting. And we're not talking about the kind of the big naval ships, the ships that were turned away. Um, ship that was turned away was a Coast Guard cutter doing illegal fisheries patrols. And Vanuatu has also been turned turned or did not allow a U.S. Coast Guard cutter to come in to pick up a ship rider to do illegal fisheries patrols. So you have a situation where the where these forces for good on illegal fisheries that are are being uh, done by the U.S. Coast Guard are being blocked out of ports, and Australia and New Zealand aren't saying anything about it, possibly because the Australian ships do still have access, and so it increases, in a relative sense, Australia's importance in the region. And that's very important to Australia, to be considered to be the primary entry point into especially the Melanesian region for uh, for its partners like the United States and um, and and others. Well, just in in closing, since you're in Taiwan, is there any sense there that things are going between the U.S. and China are getting worse and worse? I mean, I mentioned uh, their anger at the AUKUS deal, going back to the so-called spy balloon. By the way, we still haven't heard from what the U.S. found under the ocean off the Carolinas. They're being incredibly silent about it, so maybe it wasn't a spy balloon after all. But in general, their relationship is deteriorating by the day. So does that bother people in Taiwan? Um, The greater concern that I've heard from those that are uh, building up defense issues here is um, that they're going to have to fight alone. That's, That's been a very big concern. And so in terms of training and procurement and things like that, there, there has been more U.S. engagement. The U.S. has said they're going to quadruple the number of um, U.S. troops here, but that means going from about 50 to about 200. Um, and if you, if you can consolidate, if Beijing can consolidate the Pacific Islands and, and block U.S., it will be very difficult potentially for the U.S. to get supplies to resupply Taiwan. Um, and that's an overt part of the Chinese plan. Um, I mean, you can obviously hit with missiles and things like that, but the U.S. might be very reluctant to hit mainland China uh, and risk an escalation. So the concern here is that if they do have to fight, whatever the cause, if it's a deterioration of relations, if it's an imperative coming out of Beijing, whatever the cause, um, that they might have to fight alone. And uh, that's um, something that, that I think is, uh, needs to be considered very seriously from, by other allies, for example, Japan, and what the consequences of a free country of 25 million people falling to Beijing without any help um, means for the entire world. Well, hopefully we're not going to see that in Ukraine. And I thank you for joining us, uh, Cleo Pascal. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. 
And again, I've been speaking with Cleo Pascal, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on the Indo-Pacific region and the strategic implications of the intersection of geopolitical, geoeconomic and geophysical change. She has briefed government departments in the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, India and many others, and is the author of Global Warring, How Environmental, Economic and Political Crises Will Redraw the World Map. And she has an article at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, Micronesia's President Wright's bombshell letter on China's political warfare. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Oh